What is up, guys? Welcome back. And we are now joined by none other than our guest for today. Ben, how goes it? Yo, what's up, Q? How you doing? I'm great, man. Thank you for joining us. I uh, I had the great, like I candidly uh, was not necessarily familiar with your work. I was set what the fuck happened in 1971 and then I'm going through it and I'm a chart nerd and I realized, <laughs> oh, there's no reading. It's just charts. Let's fucking go. So I'm really excited for this conversation, man. I mean, I've seen a lot of these charts, a lot of our audience, you may have read a report or two that had or cited some of the work that you've done. Um, I'm also just not doing any sort of an introduction to who you are, what you've done, any justice. So I'm going to stop talking and let P take that over. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it. I'm actually going to hand it back to you, Ben. Um, <laughs> you've done so much, and I would love to hear your your intro for yourself. Tell us who you are. You guys are all passing the buck on this. Yeah, that's right. We're a very it, organized show, if you, if you didn't realize that. That's why we called you this morning. Ben, if you want to, you can pass it back to Q, and then he will pass it back to me, and then I will once again pass it back to you. Um, well, listen, P, as you know, I'm a Cloaca specialist and um, uh, armchair economist. Um, I I think it's funny you say I've done so much stuff. We put a bunch of charts on a WordPress blog and drew an error on them. And and people call that doing a lot of stuff. Um, I think it's hilarious. Um, I have done a lot of work understanding um, monetary economics, monetary history, and Bitcoin as technology um, and, and the evolution of monetary technology. So I, I guess I would say that. Um, I also was lucky enough to be able to quit my job and land a job working with Peter McCormack, um, much hated Monero max maximalist. I don't know if you get that joke. We just released a show today about Monero. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky to uh, have you guys as friends um, to be here and just talking about Bitcoin. So I don't know really what else I've done. <laughs> well, I, you and I met each other on Clubhouse way back in the day in 2021. And uh, before I knew who you were and the fact that you created uh, What the Fuck Happened in 1971, which um, is cited in like so many places, it's like I'm, I'm, I always am like, I know that guy because uh, it just shows up randomly. But you, as you said, you've always had incredibly insightful things to say about the economy, about monetary history, and... I've also always been very impressed that you, uh, you basically were like, I want a job in Bitcoin. I want to quit my job. And then you identified a really interesting way to just springboard straight into the space. And I think that's fucking awesome. Thanks, man. Um, I care a lot about helping people understand Bitcoin. It's a very difficult thing to understand. And there's a lot of different disciplines. Um, the first podcast I ever did was um, we, I mean, this, the show would be remiss if we we didn't give a huge, huge, huge shout out to um, my good friend, Heavily Armed C, Heavily Armed Clown on, on Twitter, who I co-created WTF Heaven in 1971 uh, with. He he took a shot on some rando pleb that messaged him um, on his um, small market cap podcast called The Bitcoin Echo Chamber, which is um, kind of mostly on hiatus right now. He's just kind of working on other things. Um he's very selective about kind of what shows that uh, he gets on there. And the first episode we did was called the Bitcoin spectrum. Um, and I kind of just like came with the thesis that Bitcoin is this multi uh, multidisciplinary thing and that you can't really attack it from any one angle as, you know, a computer science pr uh, project um, as an economics 
experiment as you know um, a non-political fit like it, it it needs to not only have multiple but all of these kind of the venn diagram of all these things together so i i feel lucky that i can kind of help continue um people understanding bitcoin help um i mean i hate to use it. oh education right like content you know around um helping people understand this beast that um I, I think is slowly kind of taking over the world. Um, and I, I think it's kind of more of a, an inevitability um, from, from the monetary technology point of view. So uh, I feel very blessed that I can even be a part of such a big project and get to do shows like this with you guys. So happy to be here. <laughs> can, can you, um, when did you actually first, when did you guys first publish uh, WTF happened in 1971.com? I believe it was fall of 19. Um, the Genesis story people usually ask for this is just that we were arguing with people on Twitter and um, we had to like keep digging through our phones for all these charts. It's like, no, no, look, dude, like here's the data. Like basically the idea is that like if you're studying Bitcoin um, and you think it's a better money, then you kind of have to go back and look at the other money, the money that we do use and say that it's not that good. And, um, you know, when you start doing that, you start learning about, oh, the gold standard and Austrian economics and stuff. And, uh, well, we were kind of on a gold standard this century, and we were on more of a gold standard in previous centuries. And we kind of went off the gold standard in 1971. So I was like, well, in theory, if we like that was a better money, then there should be, you know, there should be data that, uh, you know, objectively shows that things are worse. And I started finding that data, right? And you can find it right on like the Wikipedia pages surrounding um, the Bretton Woods uh, agreement, um, you know, the Nixon shock, for example. And those are the first few charts, basically, that we found. We found right on those Wikipedia pages. And we were just like kind of like hypothesized about how uh, maybe, you know, what if uh, you look at, you know, income gains or whatever, uh, or you look at income growth over, um, you know, this time period, would, would it change? Would sometimes we'd find data like that. Uh, wealth inequality, right? Um, and then, so we just started like amassing this uh, bunch of charts and, and um, heavily on clown. He was just like, what if we just threw these up on a website and, and, and asked a question instead of, you know, you know, proselytizing to people. Sometimes um, that, that rhetorical path of Socratic self-discovery is a much more effective um, method of, of getting a point across. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I could probably talk for, you know, half an hour on each one of these charts. And I think there's over, 65 now or something like that so uh, yeah um i you know i it, it was kind of we never thought it would be what it what you know not that it's you know like world famous or whatever but we never thought it would show up in as many places as it was we never thought you know jack um at jack would be tweeting about it and senators would be tweeting about it um so it's i'm, I'm super happy with you know what it is and it's it's really just to also to remember like we've got a lot of um pushback on it too p um, specifically on some charts or um, people saying that we're, uh, you know, we're, we're lying or it's misinformation. It's like, well, we didn't, we didn't create any of these charts or anything. And, and the other thing to remember is it's really just a meme, right? It's not like a, an ap academic research paper that's cited and, you know, published in a journal. It's literally just a, a WordPress blog with a bunch of things, but I think it's a great conversation starter. <laughs> I think it, I think it's so interesting that to your point earlier, it is unusual in that, you aren't making specific claims in we live in this world where everything is is condensed especially in you know on twitter um into these statements without supporting evidence it's just kind of the medium that we live in and i think this website is really fascinating because to your point 
it doesn't actually make any claims. It literally just asks the question and then has a massive trove of data with specific marks that are like, here's 1971. Here's the year 1971. Draw your own conclusions. Um, maybe let's spend a couple minutes talking about like what did happen in 1971. Why is that significant? And what is being, yeah, what, what's tying all these charts together? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a tough question to say what happened in 1971. You, you kind of have to go back. And, and again, Bitcoin is a new monetary technology. And previous to that, we had different monetary technologies. So to, in order to understand what exactly happened in 1971, you really have to go back a lot further um, to understand what a gold standard really was, was such that we had these pieces of paper that were certificates that literally said, this is worth X weight of gold. This piece of paper is worth exactly this much gold. And that was, you know, in the 1800s and, and all sorts of banks could issue these. And sometimes those banks would fail. And every time the bank failed, it was because there ended up being more paper floating around than there was gold. Um, this, you know, Lynn Alden started talking about this recently, but I've, I've been talking about it for a while. And it's a really important concept to understand of how and why gold failed. When we as a civilization started to be able to move around information more quickly than we can move around the base layer currency, the gold, then we ended up needing a new monetary technology to scale the gold to move it around. And, you know, when I, I use the word paper money, um, paper certificates kind of fall into this, paper fiat money that aren't certificates fall into this. And I also count digital paper money um, that, so these are all technologies that helped scale gold and eventually got us off of gold because uh, the paper ended up not matching the gold. Um, and you saw this happen so many times. I mean, there were pure fiat currencies, you know, in the 17, 1800s, there were experiments with that. Those all failed. Um, the, but but when that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about paper that was supposed to be represented gold. Um, and if you go back um, to all these bank failures in the 1800s, uh, eventually you kind of get to the 1913 when we established the Federal Reserve to uh, end this pesky problem of bank failures, right? Because um, all you really need is a, a lender of last resort to step in and, and bail out the banks and capitalize them when, you know, there's one of these, um, one of these bank runs, essentially, right? That was, that was the premise. And that leads you to 1929, when now that all the risk was taken out of the system, um, you ended up with a bunch of over leveraged banks, and then the entire, like, there was systemic collapse. So this is the idea of like, you know, some you hear Bitcoiners talk about, like, we have these um, forest fires that clear out the brush, right? And if you always constantly put out every single forest fire, then um, a massive one can come along because that underbrush isn't cleared out. Well, that's kind of what happened in 1929. Uh, this massive forest fire just ripped through everything. And that essentially had to, they had to, it was the first real big systemic defaults of gold. So in 1933, with FDR, the New Deal, um, there was a, a period of, of a lot of crazy economic things that happened. Um, the currencies were kind of all now inflating and there was like this quasi fiat bimetallism um, weird era. And then you get to 1944 and then you had the Bretton Woods system. So that was a long, like I have to bring you all the way up to 1971, right? So the Bretton Woods system now was this like now new quasi gold standard where these paper notes were now kind of back to being certificates for gold, uh, for a weight of gold, a specific weight of gold. So that sounds like it's good, right? But there was um, a key difference to previous gold standards was that 
you could not redeem, uh, an individual could not go to the bank and redeem these for gold, right? You could buy, and actually you couldn't buy gold either. Gold was outlawed in bullion form. Um, so from 1944 to 1971, it was this quasi gold standard where every other country would redeem their currencies for dollars and dollars could be redeemed for gold. So that was the gold centers that the, the dollar was the center of the system and the, and the US had the most gold at the time. And we were very, you know, we were very trustworthy, right? So um, it, it kind of worked well for a while. And, and, and people think that under this gold standard that, inf you know, that debasement didn't really happen, but it was more just that like kind of all the countries were debasing at the same rate. But this, um, the United States had this exorbitant privilege where everybody needed their dollars um, specifically because it's at the center of this Bretton Woods system and it, it became the, the world reserve currency because of that. And um, we were able to kind of um, take even more advantage of this than every other country. And uh, eventually we started losing all the gold. And the reason was, is because people figured, figured out the game and they started redeeming the paper. There was more paper than there was gold for the gold. And there's a, there's a chart on our website about halfway down to this green um, area where you can see the gold is like, we are losing all of it, right? It's literally leaving the country because it's being redeemed. And Nixon had to step in. Um, so Nixon, you know, I, I I love I love making fun of Nixon. Don't get me wrong. Like, listen, this guy, you know, I am not a crook, right? But it's really to say that it was Nixon's fault is is really missing the point. And in 1971, what happened was he was left with bad options on every single side. And the option he ended up taking was to temporarily suspend the redeemability of uh, dollars into gold. He came on TV and he said this, um, and that temporarily uh, was 51 years ago almost now. And uh, it's, it's, it's not temporary, it's permanent. Um, we, this, this ostensibly put the entire world on a fiat system. It removed gold from the equation completely. And it, it made fiat money work, <laughs> huge quotations there, um, because it was, it was this three-card Monty where the paper that we were using for money was ostensibly tied to gold until it wasn't, right? So it, it had this gold backing and it was just ripped away. And then and because everybody else's currency wasn't tied to gold, they were tied to the dollar and the dollar was tied to gold. Anyway, long story short, this event put the entire world system um, in, in, in the hands of governments, could now control the money supply um, unabated. They had no tie to reality. They had nothing stopping them from emitting more money uh, and, and now controlling uh, all sorts of other things, so like interest rates. And I think objectively, you know, if you just kind of sit back, that puts us into a, more, a paradigm where there's um, the ability for more interventionism. And I think in general, interventionism is very bad for markets, for value discovery, for, you know, price discovery, etc. cetera. Um, and I think that's, it has been objectively worse. I, I, I think the ways that society is better is because of deflation and we've had much more inflation since then. And now we have the problem of too much debt, right? So that's, it's, that's only part of what happened in 1971. <laughs> what is up, my Bitcoin plebs? Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. If you've been in the Bitcoin space for longer than a week, then you probably already know BitMEX as the OG crypto derivatives exchange and one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade. But what you might not know is that BitMEX is launching a brand new spot exchange on the 17th of May to easily buy and sell Bitcoin and crypto. 
to celebrate. They're giving away $1 million in crypto to spot traders over the next few months, and they want you to be a part of it. The Bitcoin Magazine crew had the privilege of meeting their team a few months back, and they think that this is the start of something special for BitMEX and their users. Sign up at bitmex.com today to catch a slice of the 1 million in crypto giveaway and stay tuned to our podcast for future product offerings from their team. Again, don't miss out on the giveaway. Free sats are the best sats, so sign up today at bitmex.com. Q, you looked uh, you looked pensive. What are you what are your thoughts? I'm just absorbing a lot of this. I mean, I don't think it takes too many too long in the Bitcoin space to know the significance of Nixon's decision and the significance of the year 1971. I'm not sure if you've ever read, and if you haven't, I highly, highly recommend Eric Yeag's book, The Seventh yeah. Principle. And he talks about he talks about how we've seen this playbook where a currency is has a gold backing. And they've used fractional reserve banking and they've just extended their reserves so far and they've just decided, you know what? We're no longer gonna be gold backed. And I believe the fastest collapse of a currency was in 39 or 40 years. And the longest it took was just about 60. But the average time span was 50 years where this cycle would essentially lead to these currencies collapsing. The first iteration was the bank in not Florence, but one of the Renaissance banks in Italy in the 1300s, as well as the Goldsmith banks in England, similar play out. And we're bearing witness to this crazy inflation. Very long-winded, I'm getting to my question, I promise. <laughs> in each of these iterations in history, the final sort of kiss of death, nail in the coffin, was some sort of a price regulation, a maximum price imposed on something. We, over the weekend, finally saw the U.S. government and more specifically the French government, French President Macron, call upon oil producers to create a maximum price on oil, almost insinuating, in my mind at least, like this is that kiss of death that we've seen historically, and oil is turning into that. How crazy do I sound? Is this like a viability? What do you see playing out with given the historical precedent we've seen with money and fiat currencies in particular, and the idea or notion that's now being introduced very quickly into our ethos of a price cap on anything in general. Well, okay. There's a lot of layers here. Um, one, I'll say that, listen, I'm a much more descriptive person rather than prescriptive. Uh, I, I think it's <laughs> near nigh impossible to predict human action. Um, and in such a multivariate system, trying to decide what's going to happen. It's, it's not something that I focus on. That, that being said, uh, while I think that inflation is a terrible thing, um, it is not the curtained fear. Um, I, you know, I got to give a shout out to, first of all, Eric Yakes, my boy. Um, good call on that one. Seventh Properties, his book. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Bitcoin Tina, Joe Carlosarle, who I hang out with every day on Clubhouse. <laughs> Um, and usually just literally listening. I put my mic on mute and I, I love listening to these guys talk. Um, so if you don't follow Joe uh, and Eric, uh, probably you already follow Tina, um, then go follow those guys. Um, Joe has laid out very, very well that, you know, the, the real problem right now is that we, we have a deflationary pressure, right? You don't hear Michael Saylor say inflation is a vector. Um, 
what he means is there's multiple vectors that are all kind of interacting in the system. And, and right now we have too much debt. That was what I said earlier. And, and debt is a real problem when you have too much of it because debt is money, right? It's um, credit creation, credit expansion um, is a way that you create money by lending. And, and so again, so many layers here. W one you said was fractional reserve banking. I actually don't think fractional reserve banking itself is the boogeyman. I do think in its current form, it's gotten too crazy. Um, but this idea that, oh, well, banks create money ex nihilo. I mean, it is true, but it's, um, it's not that they have some kind of crazy power. The problem is that the lender of last resort, which changes the, the risk uh, problem. It, it moves the risk and shifts it out of view um, instead of uh, having it land on the institution because the institution um, is implicitly and explicitly backed by the Federal Reserve. Um, but going back to the oil thing, um, a, an interesting kind of parallel that we can look. 1971, you, you, actually, uh, one of the pushbacks we've gotten um, was uh, on our on our website, WTF Happen 1971, was that, oh, well, oil prices went up a whole lot there. It's like, I, I see, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? You go off a gold standard, you start printing money, all of a sudden oil prices go up. Um, part of the problem with inflation and market intervention is that, like I said, it disrupts price signals and um, it, it messes with our, our, our human um, ability to cooperate as a global civilization to achieve goals. <laughs> So um, one of the things that I think that we've had is a lot of malinvestment in the energy sector, just as a whole, everything. I mean, you know, fossil fuels and, and renewables, there's, there's so many subsidies that I think are screwing those things up. Um, so that's, I mean, what I would say on the, on the specific oil piece is that, listen, I, I, I think that the high prices we are seeing right now are, are again, multivariate. You have a, this war going on, you have... Um, a lot of problems with our economies and our supply chains from the COVID market intervention, right? Um, you also have all this, you know, malinvestment surrounding, you know, A, A ESG, you have um, all these subsidies going on, right? And on top of all that, you also have, um, there was a, a significant monetary inflation in, uh, in 2020, right? For COVID, the, the money printing. So, these are all very separate things and they all kind of mean different things for what the, you know, the price, again, I'm not trying to prescribe what I think the price will do. I'm just trying to analyze like where we are and what we are today to your very specific question about price controls. I tend to agree with you that usually when you see a, a you know, a, a currency collapsing or a government really losing control of its monetary system, one of the things you will see is price controls for many obvious reasons, because prices get out of control because of, there's so much intervention that people um, are, 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 are led to invest in the wrong things, or we are in a, in a, in a kind of bubble of kayfabe illusion and we have to kind of get back to, um, you know, kind of back on track. And one of the ways that we do that is to um, come back to cash because we're hedging against uncertainty because there's uncertainty in the markets because everything's so screwed up. Uh, again, I, I, I'm probably going into way too much detail on my answer here. Um, but to kind of wrap up my point, price controls are, I think, always bad. And, and the fact that we are seeing them at all, I think, is a bad sign. But I want to be very, very clear. Um, I think hyperinflation of the U.S. dollar is the, the last thing that's going to happen five to ten years. If I mean, five years is probably, you know, 
absolute worst case catastrophic. I can't even see that happening, to be honest. I, I, I think it would be more like 10 years at a very minimum because of a very important fact that the U.S. dollar is the most liquid money, right? Money is simply the most liquid good in any economy. And among monies, there is a most liquid money, and that's the U.S. dollar, right? Um, to to, to de-dollarize the world just simply takes time. Liquidity begets liquidity. And, the, the you know, money also is kind of a confidence game. And, and it's clear to me anyways that the world isn't ready for Bitcoin um, in mass, right? That it's they're ready for it to be a risk asset. They're ready for it to be a small part of their portfolio, maybe in small cases, right? Most people are still kind of laughing at it. And, you know, to, to have a loss, you know, to have hyperinflation, you need a loss of confidence in, in the currency. And to have a loss of confidence in the currency, you need to have something to be confident to go into that works. And the dollar is really the only thing. Nobody's going to use... China, nobody's going to use Russia, nothing, no other currency is big enough. And Bitcoin isn't A, big enough, or B, people don't understand it enough. Um, so it's not liquid enough. And so I, I just see no case for that, right? The inflation problem that we have right now is, is transitory, <laughs> um, which is funny, uh, because the real problem we have is deflation. Deflation wants to happen. The credit wants to contract. Malinvestment wants to liquidate. And basically what the, the Federal Reserve is doing today is they are trying to fight inflation. You know, I, the Federal Reserve, I view as, as a marionette puppet that is being pulled on from different strings. They're reactionary. Um, they're, you know, they don't have some grand plan. And I don't think they're the evil, you know, Illuminati that, you know, Bitcoiners like to paint them. I think, you know, Congress has a lot more control that they exercise over the Fed um, that, you know, at, right now it's. It's, oh, well, you guys did too much of this thing that we asked you to do, so do this other thing. And that's going to crash the economy if they keep doing that. And then they'll probably pivot and print a whole bunch more money. Uh, and I don't think that will cause hyperinflation either. But but we are seeing, you know, some of these kind of these this this expanding envelope of volatility. And and who knows where it will go in a long time. Um, but, you know, in in the near term, the <laughs> you, you'd have to have an insane breakdown in in politics and, and like, you know, catastrophically 10x what we have right now to see hyperinflation. Um, I think in any major economy at all, um, you know, minor economies, that's a whole, it's a whole separate beast. Um, so yeah, I don't really know if that answers your question or not, but that's some of my thoughts on the topic there, Q. No, you gave me enough to, to play with here. So <laughs> I, I want to ask this in a less direct way, but I'm just, I, I'm just going to ask it in this way. Um, do you believe that the tagline of inflation is transitory was thought of because the Fed believed they would have to instigate a recession or has that just now become sort of the default route in which they have to go about pushing forward transitory inflation? No, no, no. I, I honestly think these people have no idea what they're doing. Um, they, 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 they okay. drive, you know, this is an analogy that they drive the car of the economy um, by looking through the rear view mirror with a delay. Um, and I think it's so prescient um, because they, they don't have the information about what's happening now. They don't have the information about what will happen. All they can do is like what did happen and then react to it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that there is a, there is a disease of like 
uh, mon modern monetary theory people in, in our, 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 in our coffers of, of like the federal reserve and, and um, of, of the government itself that are saying, yeah, I know we have a lot of problems. We have all this debt. We have all these unfunded liabilities. Don't worry about any of that. We can kind of just print all this money and it'd be fine. And, and then COVID comes along and, and governments are like, Oh, we have to, you know, the federal reserve is now fights, you know, climates and it fights, um, you know, trans rights and it fights um, diseases too. So let's fight this with, you know, money or whatever. And it probably won't cause any, I don't know. Like, I, I think that that trans, I, I was kind of half joking when I said that, I think that transitory argument was really like, they're like, Oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's probably not that big a deal. Uh, there's a little bit of inflation. I, I don't think they had realized it would get this high. Uh, but again, I don't think inflation is a long-term um, systemic problem. It's more of a, a, a political problem that, that isn't really solvable, right? The, the system has so much debt that it needs to keep expanding. It's, it's, a, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's, a, it, it's um, an, another way to think about it is it's an addiction, right? We're addicted to inflation because if we don't get another fix, we'll have a hangover. And when I say hangover, it's probably not going to do it justice what I'm trying to say because, you know, the real bad hangovers, they look like 1929. And that was, you know, devastating for everybody, like across all social um, kind of classes. That's that's what happens if we if we stop printing all money right now, we get probably way worse than 1929. I think the system is more levered. Now, will it be as bad in practice? That's a different story. You know, we have a lot more technologies. We have a lot more ways to kind of bring ourselves back out of poverty. Um, we can produce things more quick. You know, things like that. The food is is cheaper per man hour. Per, I don't know, but the the point is that like. You, you, you don't have this paradigm where like inflation is getting away from us uh, in, in the sense that we're losing control yet, right? And, and in fact, QE itself doesn't cause inflation. It, it, it does other things. It does disrupt markets. It's not a great thing. I don't think that. But just um, what really causes real inflation is fiscal deficits, us spending money. So I think if you are worried about real inflation, if you're worried about continuing 8% numbers or possibly going higher, what you should be looking at is what we're spending money on, right? Looking at, you know, tax receipts, the uh, balance sheets. Um, and and if, you, if you see programs come out like UBI and, and, and regular, not just single one-off um, of these stimmy checks, things like that, that's when inflation could actually get out of control. But again, remember that there's that deflationary vector of A, technology, and B, the, the debt that's trying to uh, liquidate itself. The, the, the debt, if you do nothing, the debt rolls over. I mean, um, it, 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 and it ends and, it, and that destroys money. And that's deflationary too. So you have to take all these things into, in, into account. And again, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but... Um, Personally, I think the Fed pivots, they start printing more money and assets go back to the moon. So, <laughs> But at a certain point, that charade has to fail, no? Like, I, I buy this narrative that... What's failure? Like the ultimate collapse of the U.S. dollar. Collapse, what does that look like? People use these words all the time, and I, I don't think... I, I would say it is no longer accepted by foreign countries. 
that is not the means in which they want to receive payment for whatever goods or services that we are receiving or importing into our country. Once mm-hmm. the dollar is no longer sort of the fuck, I'm forgetting. The so what would you use though? No, but like, no, I want to talk this out. Like, I think no, this is a really it. important discussion queue. What would they use instead? I think Russia is the perfect example of this. They have now dictated that we won't accept U.S. dollars. You pay us in rubles. You can mm-hmm. pay us in yuan. You can pay us in Bitcoin for our oil. And now the ruble is at a five-year high. So Russia, the country that everyone wants to be like and so, wants to... I'm, <laughs> I'm just pointing out that it, there is precedent for a country to come out and say, we no longer want dollar and their own currency being strengthened by it. But mm-hmm. that's because there's very extraneous factors going on there. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, I'm not saying that people won't de-dollarize or aren't already doing that in some ways, but I think to understand this reserve currency thing is really important, and I kind of touched on it earlier, and like, let's all talk about it, because like, this is a discussion I think a lot of Bitcoiners are having, and I, I don't think they understand the monetary economics of it, is such that if, if you don't, let's say you just have everybody de-dollarizes such that they all use their own currencies, and then you have this, you basically have a barter system. You don't have a liquid um, inter- change money, money that we can all use as a unit of account for economic calculation, um, as a common medium of exchange so that we can all do business together. So that like, you know, Iran can do business with Iran. Sorry, I think I said Iran Iran can do business with, uh, I don't know, Albania, you know, whatever you want, right? Like that, this tool of money is so important. It needs to be liquid and widely used in order for it to function. And and, and that I'm not just saying like, oh, I, I want it to be that way so that we do good business worldwide. I'm saying that like that we invent this as a society over and over and over again if you take it out. So if we all like actively right now, Q, all the countries sat down in a G7 meeting, they agreed, let's not use the dollar as much anymore. Let's, you know, everybody kind of just use their own currencies. You would immediately have a new reserve currency emerge. And I'm saying asking you what that reserve currency would be, whose country would you trust? Who and and not just would you trust that all the countries would agree on to trust? I think that that's where we're gonna. I think we're gonna disagree because I don't think every yeah, country maybe. will agree <laughs> upon the same. I I believe it'll be a basket. I believe some countries will have the Bancor, the, the SDR. These things are these have already been theorized and talked about. Right, but we're also pushing for a world to be less globalized. We're watching our supply chains collapse because we're so hyper interconnected, and we're watching countries or citizens urge their countries, bring these systems back to our own country so we are less reliant on a place like China or we're okay. less reliant on a place like Ukraine or Russia. It's two things on that. One, I think personally, you know, again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I think the supply chains are breaking because of malinvestment and interventionism specifically. Um, the second thing I think I lost, but my point is that in order for us to do that global trip, oh yeah, the second point is that to understand why we lost our manufacturing base, you have to understand the Triffin dilemma, um, such that if you have the reserve currency of the world, the world needs your dollars, right? You're, the world needs your money and there's a um, foreign demand for your dollars. So you end up exporting dollars and importing goods. This is Dutch, I think it's Dutch disease. No, that, that might be something else. Um, it, it's the, the problem is that we exported our manufacturing base because we exported our dollars instead. So you can't fix that, um, you know, re- reshoring uh, manufacturing problem until you um, fix the the until you basically take the reserve currency, the dollar away. Right. That's I think that's a systemic monetary phenomenon that few people understand. 
I can see you, P. I can see you. Every fucking time. <laughs> um, can you uh, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? The 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 process by which we have exported U.S. dollars and thus manufacturing. We used to have a huge manufacturing base in the United States, right? You know what the fuck happened in 1971, bro? Right? Like, think about it this way. That, Great website, by the way. <laughs> I've heard of. I've heard of it. Um, think about it this way. That so let's say you know Iran needs the dollars to transact with with Russia or whatever it is, right? They need to get those dollars from us. So we essentially have to have enough dollars getting coming out of the U.S., right, in order to support other people's trades and other people's reserves, right? So we end up exporting dollars, which changes the trades, um, the trade balance equation, um, that your your dollars become stronger, uh, and that. That makes um, foreign goods cheaper because your dollars are stronger, right? For us. This, yeah. For us. And, and the reverse is opposite for everybody else. So they end up, well, we can send them a bunch of goods and we can get their dollars so that we can do our, our things. These, this is a monetary phenomenon. It's, it's, an, it's a tr an intrinsic problem. Um, the only way to solve this is for something like what you suggested, which would be some um, you neutral reserve asset. Now, whether that's backed with a, a bunch of currencies or not that that that's where it gets very very tough um if it's not then who controls it right and and kind of who controls it in either way too um that that is a real problem cute uh, you know that thing already exists it's literally the sdr that thing exists dude it, it's what <laughs> iran has done for the last 50 years while we've been under sanctions like i i understand that this concept exists i'm just saying that what is happening in russia is a validator for a lot of other countries who may be mm. looking and rolling their eyes about oh, the U.S. wants us to do this now, like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Like, there were, there is, there is now, in my opinion, a very strong argument to be made that oil can be introduced as your reserve asset for oil-rich countries that have just had sort of the luxury of the U.S. wanting their asset or their mm. whatever they have and just pouring money, pouring weapons, pouring whatever this country has asked for. I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, literally looking at you, Saudi Arabia, yeah. versus Iran, also an oil-rich country, but just doesn't adhere to what America wants, has been sitting on oil reserves that are, at this point, far greater than what any other country in the Middle East has. So yeah. what is quietly happening that no one in America talks about? The U.S. has started to say, you want to buy Iranian oil? Okay, we're, just, we're not going to look. You can do it because the world just needs oil right now. So I'm making a, a firm belief that it's crazy because oil kind of has a shot clock on it. You can't just sit on a bale, barrel of oil for generations at a time the way you can with gold or right. Bitcoin. But these countries are going to start to use oil as part of this basket all of a sudden. And it, I think the, the nail in the coffin will be, in my opinion, tying the price of oil to a set dollar amount. Because at that point, then none of these oil countries have the incentive to price their oil on the petrodollar system. You can now reprice oil against some other currency. You can just price it in your own currency at that point. Let, let that, me let me remember to agree with you before I disagree with you, because I've, I've been yelling at you too much. Um, the part where I agree with you. Yell to, at me all you want. To, to be clear, listen, I think this whole, you know. Russia accepting Bitcoin and, and acknowledging that the Federal Reserve turned their money off thing is absolutely, yes, it is maybe even the mark of an apocalypse change. What I'm saying is these apocalypse changes take decades, right? 
to change the reserve currency, even to, you know, whatever you want, even if it's the best, even if it's the best thing, right? And everybody agrees, it still takes a long time, because liquidity is just this economic inertia, you can't flip a switch. And on the on the on the thing about tying oil to gold, that's a price control. Q. If you tie the price of a dollar to oil, in any way, you're, you're controlling price. It's a terrible idea. Oil is a terrible money. It's, it's supply fluctuates constantly, and we use it as a consumption good. I, I think that would be an awful idea. Um, and I think the only reason it was tied to the, quote, petrodollar system is because it's so um, essential to uh, economies and militaries and, and, and such that we kind of came in and strong-armed that relationship. Alex Gladstein's done an amazing work on that. If you haven't read the petrodollar Bitcoin standard thing, uh, article that he wrote, uh, I think it was in Bitcoin Magazine, actually, shout out Bitcoin Magazine, um, <laughs> then uh, to understand what, kind of way, why that ties in. But I, I think tying oil in any way to a monetary system is a terrible idea. And, and we have the evidence for it because we already did it. I don't think you actually disagreed with me. I, I think we're on the same page because I, I fully believe, unfortunately, when I die, the US dollar will exist. It, it will not have the cachet. Like when I go to Iran, which I haven't been in a long time, and I'm so fucking excited, knock on wood, that I actually get to go again this year. Like walking around with $20 in your pocket, you are the fucking richest person anyone has ever seen. That that is liquidity. not going to be the case. Liquidity begets liquidity, man. That's what I keep I, saying. I don't disagree, but like my kids, like I will take one bill from one to a hundred for every single one of my kids and my grandchildren, and save it, and then pass it on to them with like an earmark saying, "Own only open when the U.S. dollar collapses." Laminated bookmarks. There you go. Like it, <laughs> you're right. It takes decades mm. and we unfortunately are going to be the generation who has to deal with the transition and it's going to okay. get ugly but we do it for our kids so that our kids don't have to and, and listen bitcoin fixes all of these things um it just doesn't do it overnight um i i think that the world needs to do the work to understand bitcoin this is why you and i and, and p spend so much time talking about this damn computer network uh, because like, again, listen, I went through this whole story from the, you know, 1700s and 1800s and the 1900s all the way up to 1971 and today, uh, because I think to understand Bitcoin as a monetary technology, you, you have to go back to understand all those things to see this evolution of monetary technologies from shells and, and dowries and cows all the way to fiat and digital paper money all the way to Bitcoin such that we didn't have a better technology at those times to understand where we were in 1971 actually makes a lot of sense. And again, Lynn Alden is now echoing stuff that I've been saying for a while is that, 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 that literally, I understand why we went through all those things. You know, I, I don't think it's like these evil people, like, listen, there are probably evil people along the way that were like, Hey, we could benefit a lot from this, but just to understand like why we ended up with a central bank and why we ended up uh, at, with Nixon coming on TV in that faithful day in August 15th, 1971 is to understand that we just didn't have a good enough technology. Now we do. So, so here we are with Bitcoin and it is here. Um, and you have, you know, people like Russia saying, Hey, we're going to accept Bitcoin because the U S turned off our money. And you do have other countries that saw that and they are looking at that. 
That doesn't mean they're going to fucking dump all of their 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 currency, their own currency, their dollars and their all their other FX reserves and just buy Bitcoin. Because uh, even if they did, right, like let's just play that scenario out too, right? There's this mad rush for Bitcoin, right? Everybody's like, oh shit, Russia was right. Like let's all go buy all you know all this Bitcoin, dump our stupid fiat monies, the paper anyway, right? What would happen to the price of Bitcoin? It would go up a lot. And then it, people would dump it and then there would be a lot of uncertainty and it would go back. There, there would be so much volatility and uncertainty um, that that people would go back to what they think is safe. And, and maybe some of that's gold in the short term or they go back to dollars or whatever. That cannot be a straight steady line, especially in a fervor, in a, in a kind of a panic like that. I think it would be so volatile and crazy um, that it wouldn't just be like, oh, okay, let's not use paper money anymore. Who knows, right? This is something like even from early on in, in me trying to understand Bitcoin, I kind of want what would happen if the kind of the whole world really realized at the same time that they're like, why are we doing this fiat money thing? Let's do Bitcoin. And and it's something that I think a lot of people have talked about, um, how it plays out. Nobody, you know, what nobody can really know. I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just ranting here, but I, I don't, I, the more I think about it, the more I think it happens as a slow transition. And I think that's okay. I think Bitcoin gets stronger. We need to get more people having Bitcoin in self-custody, people understanding why Bitcoin matters, not just doing it because it's current thingism, right? Like I support the, the current Bitcoin thing. Like, no, we want them to understand these things. We want people to be doing these for the right reasons, um, and, and I'm, I'm bullish on, on the direction it's going. The people that I see come in um, to the space and, and, and the new blood and them understanding it in new ways and, and, and being able to communicate it to, to new cohorts, right? Like this is so crucial that we keep building this education piece and, and keep ourselves striving to understand this thing better. Hopefully I said something today that made you think, um, you know, a little bit differently about at least one of these concepts and say, you know, maybe I didn't understand that as much. And maybe I'm a little too hubristic. I try to be very careful about what I say. And if, you know, I don't know what I'm saying, I, I try to mention that too. I, I, I'm just doing my best to understand this like everybody else. And there's no substitute. You got to do the work, right? So I think right now people are doing the work all over the world. And, uh, and that takes time too. So I'm bullish, man. I, I will disagree with you about one point and, and I hope it makes you laugh. Uh, we can actually, I think, estimate, not necessarily down to like the exact number value, but your thesis is so valid. Supply and demand dictates that as demand increases, if the demand for Bitcoin went from how many wallets do we have right now? Like a hundred million total wallets, something like, that. something like that. If that were to ADX, to 8 million or 8 billion mm -hmm. <laughs> wallets. Um, the, the network would cease to work, right? Like, like lightning network. I mean, there wouldn't be enough lightning, you know, lightning channel open, right? Like you were, you were complaining, Eastside Tony, I'm going to call you out for a second because I love you. Uh, <laughs> you complained that, you know, when Bitcoin was crashing down to, I think 20K or even 28K, Strike was having issues buying Bitcoin. You think you're going to be able to buy Bitcoin on Strike in that moment? <laughs> You think you think anywhere is going to have enough Bitcoin for when you want to buy when every country in the world? So I do agree with this notion that, like personally, no, I, I actually don't want to see every country ape in a at the same time or even right now. Mm. I don't want to see every company in the S and P five hundred ape in right now all at once. Why? I haven't reached the number that I want to reach for how many Bitcoin <laughs> I want. That's selfish. It's plain and simple. It's very selfish. I, I'm selfish. I don't give a fuck. <laughs>
I, generational wealth, baby. My kids are never going to work a day in their life. Like that's, that's the goal here. Wow. You curse them with that. <laughs> yeah. Good times, right? P good times. Uh, good times. Create weak men. There it is. Weak Thank times <laughs> create men who with farm their own food. The farming of the, I don't know. Where we're that's the end of my rant. Yeah. <laughs> Can we zoom back in on Peter? For a <laughs> Clip it. Clip it. No, I'm just thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Um, I, I could keep going down this rabbit hole with no, you no, this please whole do, time. Please do. I, I, um, like, I actually have questions from what the fuck happened in 97. I'm having too much fun with this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's go into it. Let's go let's into it. it. We're just, we're just kicking like, it, bro. Okay. I, I agree. And, you know, Joe came on the show and said the exact same thing as well. So I'm going to give credit where credit is due because I have adopted this theory that, you know, Love it's Joe. not... It's not just prices that go up magically. It's because we're spending so much money. And it all, again, goes back to supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Demand starts increasing. It's supply is stagnant. And then, boom, introduce what we saw in COVID with supply chain issues. Supply actually decreased and demand went up. The double whammy that we didn't want or need and we're dealing with the repercussions. The COVID recession was its own thing. The... 2008 2007 recession was a very different thing what in your opinion is this recession going to look and feel and be remembered like and i know you hate speculative conversations but mm. i want to see sort of where what you see unwinding or being the root cause 2000 2001 dot-com bubble housing crisis in 07 08 covid stupidity in 2020 what, what is sort of that thing that you're paying attention to very closely right now here? Um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm much worse at this particular question than somebody like Joe. Um, I, I'm not looking at specific indicators. What I'm looking at is that, you know, if, if, the, if the Fed keeps raising rates or whatever, um, eventually it gets too difficult to borrow money because all, all of these interest rate things are connected. They're not directly connected. The Fed doesn't control interest rates worldwide. They're just, a, they're a market actor and they happen to be a, a relatively large one. Um, that said, they're not a regular market actor and they're not like constantly borrowing and selling with consumers um, directly. They, they have this weird kind of backroom influence on the markets, but they're, they're, raising of interest rates and changing the way that they interact with the market, the open market operations, rolling out the balance sheet, things like that. That does have effects on the economy. And one of the things that it's doing is making it harder to borrow money. And I, I already said that we, we have too much debt as a society. If you make that debt heavier, by making it even harder to borrow money, I think you'll see liquidations and, and a lot of the economy that's, that's, that's towards the end, the zombie end of the spectrum, that these companies are operating with more debt than they would be um, that if interest rates had been higher previously. And now that they're actually getting up to that high, it's like, well, now this business isn't even profitable. It's, it's literally going to fail. So I think business is failing and, and that can kind of cascade. That's the real worry is that as these things start to happen, everything is so leveraged in every way, at every single level, from the individual all the way up to the corporation and the, and the, and the governments, um, Apple's like the only company in the world that has a bunch of cash, Apple and Microsoft, micro strategy, right? Um, everybody else just has debt and, you know, equity and stuff. And as the equity value evaporates, that causes problems in other markets. And as the, the interest rates rise, debt becomes heavier and that makes it harder to borrow. And so like what can really happen, the real worry for me is that that cascades in some way 
before the Fed can take action and, and print baby print or whatever. And and there is a breakdown um, of liquidity in, in markets um, that's similar to 2008. But like you said, for, for different reasons, Q, um, I, again, I'm, I'm a fundamentals guy. So I'm trying to understand the whys and not not trying to say what the what's are. Um, but but that cascade is something that people can understand because they saw it happen in 2008. And, and that can get out of control and, and the Fed would have to try to step in. And, and like I said, the Fed is does, it, you know, it's an actor and it does have some influence, but like they're not an, the all powerful Wizard of Oz. Um, as we as we found out when we pulled the curtain back, that was just a guy that was pulling a lever and making the, the thunderclap. And they're they're closer to that than I think most Bitcoiners would paint them as this like evil, um, you know, sp- pulling the strings of the entire economy and driving the whole thing. I, I don't think it's like that. So at, at that point, then it, it gets scary because, you know, businesses are failing and that affects your job. And then you can't buy as many things and that affects other businesses and um, you can have a recession. And, and, and that's when I would see that's like more of this hard landing scenario. And I think you get in that case, you get more populism, you get more interventionism, you get more UBIism, and and the, those are worse. I I prefer to see the Fed more try to thread this needle in some way. Uh, I think that's almost impossible to do. Um, and you know what what that would look like probably is you'd continue to see relatively high inflation, over five percent inflation, um, for probably another you know three three or four years to ride out what we're in right now and, and to absorb some of the uh, monetary expansion that would be needed in order to kind of thread that needle. There, there's no way that them just raising rates right now would, would equal that, that threading of the needle because the, the system must have more credit creation. It must have more expansion in order to continue along. That's what kicking the can means is we're going to continue expanding. And there are downsides that, to that. Don't get me wrong. The downsides are you'll see a greater um, wealth, wealth inequality, a greater divide, uh, more class warfare. That may still be better than the real hard, hard, hard landing, which is the 1929 style event, which is just they stop printing altogether. So again, don't know what's going to happen. Not trying to make predictions. I'm trying to understand what could happen. And these are the things that I, I worry or, or think about. And again, have to throw it to, you know, Bitcoin Tina and Joe Carlos Harley for, um, for really laying these things out and making them make sense to me. Cause it, I, I really, I feel like I fully understand that these, those theses now. Okay. I have a question for P now <laughs> and, that, and then I'll return Ben to our conversation, but I want P to feel included. So no, I'm just I'm loving this. Based on what Ben has said, which would you prefer? A Great Depression style return to society for the, the sake hangover. of a hard landing, or class warfare because we continue to print money incessantly? Wow, those are two fucking terrible options. Yes, Jesus. Um, you've never you're Jerome Powell, bro. Me. You're Jerome Powell. What do you do? <laughs> what do I do? Why? <laughs> has God forsaken me? Um, man, I can't say neither. Nope. It's like Mary Kill. You know, you gotta pick. Yeah, you're, you're the king of fuck Mary Kill. Well, guess what? I Would know. you rather? I know. I know. Okay, wait. Repeat the options one more time just so I Would really you have them locked hard in Hard landing in into heart. a great depression or continue to print money to the point where you see class warfare. Oh, God. 
I am going to, I, I like the framing of this question because it forces a deep analysis, uh, such as it is. And I'll add while he's thinking, and what makes big hyper Bitcoinization happen in a better way? Which scenario? Ooh, I like, I like That's that caveat. Key. That is exactly the direction I was going to go with it. So uh, I'm I not going to, no, 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 seriously. That was, that was where I was going to go. I am never going to choose a great depression because that yes. is, Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I, that just registered in my head i love it i love it um because i you know um i don't want i don't want to see people as much as i talk about it on this show as much as i already have a palette full of you know grade 4d uh dog food which i'm ready to eat <laughs> at any opportunity i test it out every night i eat a can the next day I eat two, the next day I eat three. Soon I'll be eating all dog food all the time. By the way, uh, 4D grade dog food is uh, stands for diseased, dying, disabled, or dead. That's the quality of meat that goes into dog and cat food and animal feed. Um, yeah. I don't want to see people having to uh, eat that shit, live in cardboard boxes, under bridges, you know, the mass, you know, uh, soup kitchens, shit like that. I think it's going to lead to a just terrible terrible times i would rather see um the continued inflation because i think that that does ultimately create a situation where we can have this softer landing i consider myself i am a uh, as much shit as i talk about you know the united states i think it is an incredible ultimately all right so far uh successful experiment in uh federated systems the the state level system that we have is truly amazing. And I think that Bitcoin actually um, is the best chance that we have as a world and also as a country to succeed as humans and eventually make it off this planet. So I think that the second option is the one that gives us the, the best chance of thriving as humans. So I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to say, uh, I hope that it doesn't lead to class warfare, but f the force constraint that uh, you've established, I'm going to I'm gonna choose minimal class warfare because I would argue it's already happening today. Right now, it's just sort of a cold war rather than a hot war. So you like I, it, Kim? I, I, I accept it. I don't Answer like it. And I, will tell you, and I will tell you why by giving you my answer. Um, and Chris actually brings up the point that I want to make. While it would be terrible to go into a depression style society, while I don't want to see that happen to our society, mm -hmm. I unfortunately believe it is a necessary byproduct for us to finally learn some fucking lessons. Because if we just look, both scenarios lead to hyper Bitcoinization, mm -hmm. one does it faster. But do you want to do it faster and have it fall apart, or do you want to do it? Take your time, get there, and get there the right way. By flushing out all of these bad investments, by letting, you know, the depression, a great depression would hit all classes. It would not just hit the poorest classes. And in turn, those rich people who have created these fucked up systems and ways of just making money for themselves, they will inevitably be caught in this crossfire. And that system will be viewed as, hopefully, and I am in injecting some hopium now into, you know, I'm like Mark McGuire injecting some stuff into my veins to beef up my argument here. But I'm hoping that by tearing down these systems, we cannot or will not allow for them to be recreated. So 
I do think both scenarios can lead to hyper-Bitcoinization. Mm -hmm. I worry that in one scenario, you could actually reintroduce the same issues and almost accidentally hurt the full potential that Bitcoin can reach. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And I think you guys both hit amazing points. And actually, I presented Q's case to Joe when we were, because you know Joe and I yell at each other on a weekly basis about this stuff. And Joe and I don't agree on everything. I presented exactly that case to Joe. This cleans out the malinvestment. It's the hangover. It's the, it's, uh, what do you call it when you quit drugs? It's the- um, Oh, detox. Detox, yeah. It's like detoxing everything, right? And that is ultimately good, although painful and in the short term. And he countered. And, and this is where I finally kind of shifted to his view, which is that what, what are the things that really worry you the most about society long term is the erosion of our liberties, um, you know, the increasing power that the state has. And if you have this very hard landing situation, uh, Ray Dalio has a chart of this and I have it on the website about the emergence of populism that the, the one of the worst times for the emergence of populism was 1929. You had Feder, FDR came in and he, he changed like everything and he's intervened in the economy and he was burning, you know, crops to change, you know, price controls and all these terrible things. It, my worry in that hard landing situation is that you get this like terrible populist, um, you know, a, I would say a reality TV show star, but we already had that as a president. Um, but imagine a terrible president coming in and saying, look, I can save you from all this terrible pain. That's when you're most at risk is when everybody's hurting the most. And that's when things could get worse. So that's that's my fear. Again, not telling society what to do, uh, but we're just kind of talking these things through. But I agree with both your, you know, both your cases. Makes sense. It was a great question, Q. Mm hmm. Uh, let's go down, you know, this rabbit hole, continue down this rabbit hole though. Um, I loved Joe's point. I think I need some more time to marinate in that mm -hmm. before I accept it. So I'm on, I'm on your journey, Ben, feel free to guide me along and be my shaman there. Um, but, but going back now to, you know, just to be clear, Joe Carlosari says it and you're like, I'm on board. And either of us say it and you're like, it's <laughs> fucking bullshit. It's not, it's like, <laughs> It's it's a fair I, it's a fair thing to say. I mean, let me, let me explain it like fun. this. Let me explain it like this. As someone who smokes way too much weed, mm. those days where I take off from weed are <laughs> the worst night's sleep. I have no fucking appetite. It is the worst. And then after day three, I'm like, oh wow, this is what my brain actually operates at at full capacity. So I I kind of don't. You're saying I think Joe be... needs to spend some time smoking weed with me and then go <laughs> off of weed. <laughs> That's my that's the conclusion. That's okay. my got it, got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, let let's play the other side of the equation, which I do unfortunately think is the most more likely scenario, not what I want to see happen, but that in fact we will just see a continued printing, the class warfare. That scenario I do believe happens. Um, you know, I'm not trying to predict or ask you to predict either. At what point though do you think the idea of quantitative tightening is just forgotten and thrown out the door and we are just in a forever quantitative easing system when enough shit breaks and they decide to change their mind i mean like i said the, the fear is that that happens in in such a catastrophic fashion that they 
can't turn it back around quickly, but you know, you could see, you know, debt market sees up, you could see, um, it, it can really start anywhere. And that's, that's why I get, I'm not like watching any one in, indicator. People are watching the bond markets. They're watching the tens and twos inversion and stuff. All the, they're watching commodities markets, all of these things. I'm saying it could start anywhere because the system is very fragile due to pent up malinvestment, um, broken supply chains because of a lot of what we've just done in the last few years, but also, you know, on a, on a grander scale. Um, and, and the number one thing is the debt. The debt is too heavy on every single level. Again, individuals, go, uh, corporations and governments all have so much debt. They borrowed, you know, this is a, it's an analogy. It's a bad analogy. Um, but it is an analogy to think about these things that that debt is borrowing from your own future, meaning you get to enjoy the consumption now or in theory, you could be investing in something. But in the future, you have to have some form of, OK, well, now I have to do the hard work to pay that off. But what the system that we have now is we're, we're not really doing that pay off part. And at some point we have to pay that off. And. The, when, when these things can collapse so quickly, like what we saw happen in 2008 was a breakdown of trust and debt is based on trust. And so there was new, new debt creation and nobody trusted each other. Uh, and, 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 you know, that scares me because A, it can just happen overnight almost. And you never know where or when it's going to show up. And so many things, then it ripples out and affects so many parts of the economy. Um, so I don't remember the exact question you asked, <laughs> but no, no, you're, you're answering it though. Keep talking. Uh, well, I, I, I think that you could see that happen, um, as they, it's again, again, they, they are raising interest rates and they are doing, you know, I, I don't even know if you can call it quantitative tightening. They're, they're basically not, um, they're, they're letting bonds expire. So in theory, the balance sheet is de declining. They're, they're, they're not buying as much and they're letting some expire or whatever. Um, you know, you want to call that tightening or whatever, or tapering. They're not selling. Yeah. Uh, again, this, so the idea is that they're trying to thread this needle. You have this like massive deflationary force of credit that wants to contract. That they, you know, people need to do that thing that I was talking about earlier where they pay off the debt, right? You, you brought that consumption forward. You brought that investment forward. Now you have to pay it off. That is all constantly happening. We're constantly paying off debt. It's if you don't have the new debt creation that the system can unwind very quickly. Um, so if, if we see the Fed continue along whatever path they're on, you can call it whatever you want to call it. It's the direction. It's the vector that matters something will break, right? And the something is, is also too simplistic. I mean, like more things will break probably because one thing breaks and it cascades. And you, you can see this happen in, in various markets, but it, it cascades across a lot of markets because then you get business failures and that affects the business that they were buying from. And the guy loses his job, so he's not buying from this thing. And it, it is a cascading of failure. Again, to your point earlier about liquidating that malinvestment, that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to heal the society, but that process is very painful. And can can the Fed that if if that happens, if they aren't threading this needle and it breaks down in some kind of cascade, can the Fed then step in and bring things up? Or or another way of saying it is, can instead can they find this you know in between vector 
where they just kind of perfectly kick the can and and we we kind of go on on p's um case right we had the, the q case of just yeah just stop printing all money today and and do the hard landing or we had p's case it's like well can we just like just print just a little bit of money and then you know and then we'll have just a little bit of malinvestment we'll have a little bit more wealth inequality and it's it's not so bad can they do that that's really um i think it's really hard to find that angle um so i mean if they can more power to them but i i i it's 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 worrisome to kind of watch it as a as a market participant and somebody who exists in the world i guess <laughs> Class warfare enthusiast P, do you have any comments to add to this? I'm just thinking about what type of, you know, steam powered vehicles will we be driving with the spikes mm. coming out the front during mm. this period of conflict <laughs> and uh, what that's going to look like. Mine's going to have a guitar amplifier. Oh, now you're muted, Ben. Oh. No, he's not. No, you're not. Please stand by. Apologize. <laughs> Apologize. Apologize to me for my own technical difficulties. Can you cut, hear me now? Cut the screen. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Did you hear what I was saying before? Yeah. Yeah. Great. You were Great. you were suggesting that we're gonna be driving motorcycles with guitar amplifiers behind them and fire coming out of the pipes and driving in the desert. I've seen yes, that that's before. Right. The documentary. Yes. The do <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to have to be turned upside down and have my blood drained out into someone who sprays spray paint on their face. Um, it, and and this is, we're we're describing very extremes on both sides, right? Like. It, it doesn't have to be literally that we're eating dog food, but we could be eating what is essentially could be dog food. And it's not quite as bad. There, there, there are, we, we, we are, we are kind of trying to paint a picture for folks and, and being dramatic for effect. It, it doesn't have to be quite that bad that we're eating our own children um, as American Hoddle likes to say, but that, you know, things get really bad for you. Um, that that's, that's worrisome. And, and if, if, Wealth inequality continues. That can be really bad too, because it can also. Th th this is the real problem for me. Is that like again, I'm, I'm trying to kind of play both these scenarios out, and both of them lead to populism, right? That's the real problem. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, which one is worse? Where where do we really have more uh, attack surface? Uh, so you know, for for our basically our political systems, and. Personally, I, I think Joe's made the case that the hard landing you get, you have more attack surface. You, people are more desperate in that situation. You know, it's so right now that they're they're you know picketing about whatever the various things. I, I I think once people are starving, um, or, or 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 it's harder to you know again not eating dog food, but like it's harder to put food on the table or whatever. I, I think that's a scarier situation. Dude, totally. Look, I have no kids, and if I can't feed my kids, I'm going to go fucking raid whatever I need to raid if I don't have the money to pay for it. Mm. Again, I don't ha actually have kids, though, so <laughs> I don't, I'm not actually going to do that. But I will camp out in Costco and hold down the fort there while all of you idiots fight amongst each other. So This conversation uh, was super dark. Maybe we should just talk about like exactly how awesome everything's going to be when hyper Bitcoin is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Let's shift, <laughs> let's shift there. But not necessarily like how awesome everything is going to be, but let's talk about why Bitcoin presents this op this unique opportunity. For me, and I say this a lot, I know, but it changes the incentives. Um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, sort of people in power, what, you know, why. I think it is important to acknowledge that the people that are making these decisions are doing so because of the incentives that are in place around them. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is a mistake to kind of be like, I am a champion of the light and I would do different things. We, we would probably, 
But if we don't fix the incentive structures that are there, even if we remove certain people from power or change specific people's minds, these systems will kind of, they, they self-propagate. And so the thing that is so exciting to me about Bitcoin is that it truly starts to change the fundamental incentives that exist in these types of systems, in my opinion, for the better. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Q, your thoughts, Ben, on that aspect of this. I mean, I definitely have one for this. Um, it's it's funny because I think Milton Friedman said in the 1970s the, the same thing you said, P. So obviously, I think he was quoting you when he said um, that the way you, th you know, the, the people want to change things, right? And and the, in order to do that, they want to elect the right people. But that's not how you change things. The way you change things is to make it profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. And this is what P is talking about. The problem today in politics specifically, right? Like even if you're a statist cuck, um, that uh, you <laughs> essentially have this, this broken incentive system where somebody can come up uh, and say, don't, you know, I heard you're in a 1929 style collapse, bro. I can fix that for you. And here's how, and they don't have to worry about how they're going to pay for it. Right. That is the, one of the fundamental broken incentive systems. And it's, you know, it's not quite that simple, but it is pretty much that simple that somebody can come along and say, listen, MMT, bro, we can pay for anything. Um, don't worry about what the value of the dollar will be in 10 years, but like, we can literally pay for anything we want to. It's totally fine. And, and they literally don't have to come up with the money. And they can just promise that. That is a fundamental problem with our society, even if you forget all this whole macro talk that we just had. And, and that is something that Bitcoin fixes because you cannot print it, right? So if we could if we could manage to get folks onto a Bitcoin standard, that problem, I think, is eliminated and helps solve a lot of problems where you have uh, malign incentives in, in politics where... They again, they 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 are. It's it's funny because that it's like that whole debt situation where it's like they're borrowing from your future, um, it, except that there's no debt contract and it's like it's all hidden from view. It's like don't worry about it. we'll just print the money, uh, and then you know future generations will pay for it. But don't worry about that part, right? Like they then and they don't they don't talk about that. So that I think that's the number one. There's and there's like also a hundred more of those incentives that get changed from Bitcoin. And the other probably really big one is that it 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 makes it very hard to distort prices and, and prices. Remember folks, prices are the collective uh, information of 8 billion people bidding with their time, with their um, things that they produce, with their services, with their companies in order to find something that the market will bear. And in this search, um, there is a promulgation of truth of what humans value in society. And if you're constantly uh, intervening into those markets, you're intervening in this process of us as a globe deciding what is valuable. And, and, and Bitcoin is so hard to manipulate. It's so hard to, um, you know, if, if we're transacting with it um, personally, we're not, you know, just leaving it all Coinbase. Uh, it, it's hard to disrupt that process, harder, I would say. And, and that, I think would get us more back on track of, of what we really value, right? And what, whatever that is, what 8 billion, not what I value, but it, what 8 billion people value. And, and that is why I'm the, probably the most bullish on humanity long-term um, from this kind of whole hyper-Bitcoinization thesis, right? That's, that's what I like to see. <laughs> 
and beautiful, so too. eloquent, <laughs> so full of hope. I'd like to ask you a question, and I hope you'll give it the you know sort of due thought. Um, Mary, fuck, kill. <laughs> Janet Yellen, Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde. Oof. Okay. Okay, so Lagarde, because she seems like a freak, is uh, definitely a fuck. Um, see, I, this is tough for me. Like, listen, I'm a straight man, but I kind of like Jerome Powell. I think, I think he's a G, you know? One of my favorite quotes from Jerome Powell is when um, some Congress critter dude asked him in one of these hearing things, he was like, uh, could you ever see Bitcoin become the Royal Reserve currency? And I'll paraphrase it. You go to go find the video yourself. But he basically says, yeah, we could see that. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, and people don't use it as a widespread medium exchange, but we could see it. And I was like, my boy, Jerome Powell. So I guess I'd marry <laughs> Jerome Powell for that. And uh, sorry, Janet Yellen. Didn't make the cut. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I like it. Is that, was that too much logic and reasoning for the no, uh, tone, tone of no, that question? Everybody, <laughs> honestly, like that was a lame, like, the Jerome Powell, marrying Jerome Powell is actually the right answer. Like there is a right and wrong answer, but the better rationale is actually because why wouldn't you want to be married to the man who has the money, the keys Ooh. to the money printer? Yeah, because I'm not he like that. Cranks the lever. Plus, like, Concilian effect. How like much? That, what is, what is infinity divided by two? Because if you can print infinite dollars in the divorce settlement, I'm going to get half of infinity. Uh, ben, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, eggs, lots of eggs, and and <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, uh, we've we've generated fully into uh, my bullshit. Yeah, we should probably wrap this. Up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So, so b before we do though, uh, bring it all back around. I'm curious what your read on. You heard the end part of our conversation before we dive. You know, before we switched over uh, to this specific segment. What are your thoughts on what's happening in terms of? Uh, this compass mining uh, situation with uh, this Nick Carter kind of uh, explosion. Basically what I'm asking is what are your thoughts on what's happening in the current epoch of Bitcoin as we are in this bear market and the things that people are talking about, the, the, the social currents that are flowing back and forth. Mm. Does this match what you've seen in previous cycles in terms of the, not, not necessarily the specifics, but the, the, the beats that are playing out? People, you know, who were heroes kind of falling down and, and being torn down for good reason, for not good reason. I, I, listen, Pete, I, I, you know, I only have one hero and you're it. You know that. Uh, and I don't I don't have other heroes because um, I, I slay know. them. I slay them people constantly because my other hero, Matt O'Dell, and um, and my other hero, Nick Carter, told me to slay my heroes. So I don't have any heroes. Um, and listen, like. Bitcoin is, you know, I've, I've always been a very risk averse person. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to answer this in a very ambiguous way, I think. Um, but I think it's, you know, to, to try to answer this in an evergreen way is hard. Um, so I'm going to be, try to be precise with my language that Bitcoin for me is the best risk reward trade um, that I can think of in the whole world. Right. It's like, oh, could I grab some, you know, small market cap tech startup company and make, you know, 50 X or whatever, if I was a credit investor, which I'm not, and, and that would be a better trade than Bitcoin in some sort. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that those trades exist. That's not my point. I'm saying risk reward trade holding Bitcoin itself is the best uh, 
option for me. It's the, the lowest risk and, and I think the highest reward and the best balance of those two. Anything we do beyond that, whether it be investing in shitcoin companies, investing directly in shitcoins, um, even mining itself, um, or, 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 you know, there's the BlockFi thing too, and, and all those lending collateralizations. Um, I've spoken extensively about these lending things. You can go find them. Uh, you can DM me and I'll, I'll send you some links. I've done it on what Bitcoin did with our sponsor, BlockFi. Um, with, uh, you know, all of these things are risk plays, okay? Um, and there are trade-offs there that people are deciding to make. Um, you know, if, if you want to mine and you want to use one of these companies, you're going to get certain trade-offs. It might be a lot easier. It may not be loud in your house. You won't have to build anything. You won't have to manage the physical space of the thing. And for that, you know, if it's not your miner, uh, it's not your, you know, not your hardware, not your miner, really, right? And and that's a trade-off that, that some people are going to make. Um, I, I don't know what's happening with Compass, um, to be honest with you. Um, they are still a sponsor of the show I work for. Um, I... I think in theory that business can be sound. It's a, probably a really hard business. I think they've had a lot of challenges. Um, I, 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 I can see it not being a scam. I don't understand why people are like, it's a scam. Um, certainly they had a lot of challenges. Um, so I, again, I don't really know what's happening with that. I have no inside information on it and I don't know which direction it'll go. It's a risk play, just like the lending platforms are. And I've, again, I've spoken extensively about this. I think what BlockFi is doing is interesting. Um, I think they're trying to figure out what a Bitcoin bank would be, right? And I, I told you earlier, I don't think fractional reserve, again, is the enemy. The enemy is the lender of last resort. However, you take the lender of last resort out, then the risk is um, much more prominent and localized to individual institutions. And I, you know, I grilled Zach about the business itself on what Bitcoin did. Um, so you can go check that episode out. It's from uh, almost two years ago now. No, uh, almost a year ago now when I first joined Um the show. Um, so, and those are risk plays, right? Like any of these things is adding more risk than just self-custing yourself um, and hodling Bitcoin. And I don't fault anybody for doing any of those things. Um, and I think that anybody that's promoting them without um, talking about the risks as well, right? Like, listen, like I, I wouldn't promote some altcoin that I thought was just like complete malinvestment in riding some, you know, strange hype wave, um, but, you know, if if they if if people think that. See, so, like, listen, like I, I think, you know, the, the Nick thing, what I've I, I think I've, I've talked with him once about this. And I think he said um, he, he he's pursuing things that he he thinks that other other people are valuing or whatever. And, and he's an investor. I, I don't really care what he does with this money. Um, I, I consider Nick a friend. Um, so you can take this with a grain of salt. You can cancel me or whatever. But. Uh, I think Nick is a brilliant thinker. He's written some of the best pieces on Bitcoin. I still cite them to this day. And I think he can also do and say things that I disagree with and invest in things that uh, I don't necessarily like um, at all. So um, I think the whole Slayer Heroes thing, maybe we should kind of expand that into people aren't just one thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that there can be nuance to a person. There can be things about the person that I like and that I don't like as well. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that there's so much malinvestment in crypto. Um, 
that we don't even have enough time to get into the conversation that I would have around if there's any nuance around these like quasi equity tokens and if it's a new way to fundraise um, because I don't think the tokenomics work on those things anyway and they're built on foundations of sand um, or quasi decentralization. Um, so, so I'm, you know, again, I, I, there might be a nuanced conversation in there somewhere. I personally never recommend buying any altcoins except Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is a monetary phenomenon. I think Bitcoin has won the monetary war, um, the, the monetary narrative. No, nobody's releasing a new XRP or a new um, uh, Nano or a new friggin, I'm, people are probably Googling these currencies now. Um, nobody's, nobody's releasing a competitor directly to Bitcoin anymore. They're trying to build something else. And, and that's still something that maybe we don't know, or, or probably it's all built on sand. You know, I, I maintain that position, but I'm a monetary maximalist. And I think Bitcoin has clearly won that. Um, so if people want to invest in other things, uh, understand that they're extremely risky. And I, I think they're probably all shit. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Um, again, I like Nick. Um, I'd hang out with him. I'd probably give him a hard time about some of the things he's invested in, but um makes a lot of money so uh, good for him i guess and i think he's done a lot of good things for bitcoin too so he he's done let's say maybe he's done negative things and he's also done really really positive things for bitcoin so i think right, there's nuance well, nuance exists deal with it thank you so much for joining us we're just at about time i have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation uh <laughs> me too yeah it's great q Anytime. any last thoughts before we uh no i mean we'll just give been the last word but i'm putting you on the spot and saying you're coming back on the show you don't really have a say in this so just be prepared yeah. i say this about all the people i bring on these days it's almost like you have good taste in the guests you bring on mm. for us to chat with i wouldn't go that far there was that one guy though pete no i'm just kidding i don't that know one guy. Who that? <laughs> uh, i don't who, i, I don't want the last <laughs> okay all right she'll show whatever you need to shill. tell people where to follow you like what how can people stay up to date with all your bring big brained ideas? Oh my God. Um, I uh, spend um, a lot of my waking hours just editing uh, what Bitcoin did episodes and helping um, try to bring it is great content to people, educational content, looking at different angles. Um, so what Bitcoin did is it's something I work on. It's not my project. Um, it doesn't represent every single view that I have, um, but I think we we have a very broad discussion. So I definitely recommend at least checking out some of the episodes. We've re released some really great ones this year. Um, I am on Twitter at MrCoolBP. Um, and what, what the fuck happened in 1971? I've been on the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast a few times. You can check that out too. Um, and just uh, and, and on Clubhouse, I'm pretty much on Clubhouse every day. So come come chill with me and P on Clubhouse, and Q is going to join us too next week. He says, "Dude, honestly, I'm trying <laughs> to think I need to like get yeah, active man. on Clubhouse. Everyone keeps talking about how like this, the rooms you, of Clubhouse are just better than Twitter. You can come listen to that 100%. Tina and Joe Alpha with me every day, dude. I, love <laughs> I, I have Clubhouse. I've genuinely never used it before, so right. it's happening. Q, we're doing it. Make a, we're doing make it. An appearance on Clubhouse." All right, my friends. All right, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. This is an absolute blast. I always love getting yelled at and being told that I'm stupid. So this was fun. In all seriousness, though, um, we'll, be, we'll have you back soon enough.